Hello, Marvelites! Welcome to This Week in Marvel, episode number 344. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent Am. And I'm Jamie Frevely, a.k.a. Agent Monochrome, because that's how I am dressed today. And You're actually, wearing white pants? I know, I'm wearing black and gray. Monochrome <laughs> is like the no colors, but you copied me. You we're kind of both... Got a black shirt on. Yeah. He's adopted my uniform, finally. Yep. I've infected him with the venom. This week is... Uh, a fun Spider-Man week. Oh, it sure is. We're going to talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 800 in our picks of the week in a little bit, along with Star Wars, Lando, Double or Nothing number one, and Lockjaw number four. So if you need to read up on those books before you listen to the rest of the show, do it now. You yeah. own it. I mean, this is the end of the Lockjaw run, so there's definitely going to be some spoilers or some culmination and um, maybe not a spoiler, but there's puppies. <laughs> so there's puppies there are puppies and it's wonderful it is wonderful part of what's so cool about spider-man this week is there are nine billion covers to this issue we did covers with legendary french artist mobius he did a bunch of pieces for us back way way back maybe early 90s late 80s uh, some of them are actually up on display here at Marvel headquarters in various places. He has a really gnarly, weird Punisher. I've never seen the skull drawn the way he's done it, and it's downstairs. But his his Spider-Man is really cool and creepy, and that's one of the variants. Uh, I mean, you get Frank Cho variant, Paolo Rivera with his dad, Joe Rivera, Mark Bagley, John Cassidy, Greg Land, Steve Ditko variant, tons more. And then there are some that were like made for retailers, some that are made for conventions. I saw a very cool one by Adam Hughes. So there'll be tons and tons of variants of Spider-Man 800, and it's it's fitting. It's a legendary, I, I guess it can't be legendary yet, but it is a landmark It is a issue. landmark issue for sure. Um, we have a few of these variants up on Marvel.com, so when you... Visit marvel.com for more information on this show this week. I'll add a little link for you to check them out. But it's not even the last issue because uh, 801 is, I think, the end of the run, right? Yeah, 801 will be Dan Slott's final issue. Yeah. And that's coming up. That's with artist Marcos Martin. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. But uh, another big piece of fun that we're celebrating is the 40th anniversary of the Japanese Spider-Man television show, which you just heard the theme song for, and yes, you're not crazy. Just a little <laughs> bit of funsies. We put in the greatest theme song in Japanese television, which is probably, that's probably not even true. Someone's <laughs> going to correct me, but it's my favorite. Earth's Mightiest Show has a little segment up this week where you can see some uh, snippets. Now, 40 years ago, shout out to Jordan Gibson, a.k.a. at Gibson Comics on Twitter, who initially pointed out the 40th anniversary to me. Spider-Man, that's the phonetic way, the translation for it. So you can say Japanese Spider-Man, you can say Spider-Man. It kind of both works. It's a tokusatsu series, which is essentially live action movie or TV show with special effects. So think kaiju movies, your Godzillas, your Gamoras, Power Rangers. So it's cool. I love... Very much love tokusatsu stuff. It's essentially a show about a dude that has very little to do <laughs> with the original source material of Spider-Man. I'm actually fine with this because yeah. I feel like a Japanese Spider-Man deserves his own origin story. He doesn't totally. have to be a Japanese Peter Parker. Nope. 
he is his own man. He's got his own origin, and he gets his spider powers from something very different. Yeah. So his name is Takoya. He finds a spaceship called the Marveler, and it's dying pilot dude who's named Garia. Garia was the last survivor of Planet Spider, of course, as as often happens. Uh, he's the last of his race, and Planet Spider was essentially destroyed by Professor Monster. One of the greatest villain names of all time. It's the best. It tells you exactly what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, Professor Monster is really cool. He has this like metal eye thing on his face. Uh, and he has an army called the Iron Cross Army, uh, who one of his general, I believe it's the general or she's the leader of the army, is Amazonis. She's super cool. Then while Takoya is talking to Garia, Garia's like, you need to help me. Garia injects Takoya with some of Garia's blood which gives Takoya some spidery-type powers. It's not quite the same as how Peter gets bitten by the spider, but he also gives Takoya a bracelet, and the bracelet provides Spider-Man's suit, gives him uh, web shooters, which the web shooters do, like spider nets and spider strings is what they call it in the show, and a bunch more. And the bracelet is also how Spider-Man calls Marveler. You know, when he needs the ship, he's like, hey, ship, come get me. And then it also turns the ship into Leopardon, this giant fighting, awesome robot, which is actually one of my holy grails for toys in the early 80s. It was actually made as a toy here in the States. I've never, no, it wasn't. Yeah, I've never gotten it. And like, there's really cool stuff because as part of this deal way back when, Toei, who is the production company who makes this, who's legendary in um, Japanese entertainment, live action, cartoons, and all this other stuff. Toei and Marvel had this cool deal. So Marvel actually was able to do some stuff with Toei properties. Toei did some stuff with Marvel properties. I believe they also did the Tomb of Dracula yes. anime, yeah. uh, which is really cool, very 70s anime style, like Captain Harlot type of like that kind of really cool animation. And Blade was in that comic here, so mm. I know what I'm looking for as soon as I get back <laughs> to my computer. So as many fans of Marvel Comics in the 70s know, Marvel produced Shogun Warriors comics. And Shogun Warriors was a great line of really big toys. Mazinger Z, the line of toys pulled in different robots from different series. So it's really cool. There's this mix and match and, and sort of sharing of fun that, I think really helped a lot of kids get excited about different things. Uh, and so Leopardon is a toy that I, I really, really want just because I love this show so much. And it's really neat. My favorite things that I read about this show was that he had to, much like Peter Parker, protect his secret identity. And he acted weak around his friends. And um, I think that's always really funny. When you <laughs> know a guy, you know he's a hero. And then he's like, I can't open this jar of pickles. <laughs> That is what I automatically assume he was classic to be weak with. guy move. Classic weak guy move. Can't open this jar of pickles. Yeah, you were talking about puppies earlier. There's a great episode where Spider-Man saves a puppy. He's he's in his flying car, which I think is really just driving at that point, if I remember correctly. And there's a little doggo on the on the side oh, of the no. road, and he picks it up, and then he like takes it in his car, and he goes away. He keeps going. It's really great. For some reason, there's an episode where Spidey has a uh, he's shooting a machine gun. I don't remember why. But Takoya and Leopardon were in Spider-Verse, which is uh, the 2014 Spider-Man big event. We actually, Dan Slott is a fan of this, of course, because Dan Slott is the best and he knows all kinds of crazy stuff. So they brought Takoya and Leopardon into it as part of the 
you know, massive Spider-Verse crossover, which was really awesome. That's miraculous to I me. I know. But also, keep in mind, this is a show that's 40 years old. Yeah. And it ran for 41 episodes and a movie. So this is not like MASH. It's not like it's been around forever. <laughs> but it had such a huge impact on pop culture and yeah. Spider-Man fans around the world. Totally. And it's special, and that's why we're celebrating. Yeah, so it's really cool. Hopefully you guys can find a way to, to check it out or just pull some clips, see some stuff on Earth's Mightiest Show's Facebook page. They're posting up some stuff from uh, the program, and it's neat. So that is a little bit of celebration of Spider-Man. And I think from there... It's about time we talk about Amazing Spider-Man, number yeah. 800. Uh, this is 10 years in the making, and it's massive. There are four numbered chapters in this book, plus two epilogues, plus a post-credit scene. It's like a the Lord of the Rings version of Spider-Man, and it moves. You know, this is a comic that you're, you're going to sail through it. It's 80 pages long, but mm -hmm. it is a quick read. Yeah, I mean, it, it moves. It, yeah. like, goes there. It's at a, a breakneck pace because it's Spider-Man versus the Red Goblin. The Red Goblin being Spider-Man's greatest nemesis, Norman Osborn, the man who killed Spider-Man's girlfriend mm -hmm. uh, way back when, killed Gwen Stacy. He has haunted Spider-Man numerous times. He's come back again and again and again. And now... Because of J. Jonah Jameson, Norman Osborn has learned Spider-Man's secret identity, which is the worst possible scenario. It gets worse, though, because he also has his goblin powers and his, his tech, his pumpkin bombs and his glider. He also now has the Carnage symbiote. That has been the whole storyline in Go Down Swinging. It's Spider-Man having to face an amped up and super dangerous Norman Osborn. Which, that's just terrifying all by itself. Oh, yeah. Because the goblin is already so sinister and creepy and insane. And now he's got carnage. Yep. That's just a nightmare scenario. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah, you're right. This is the worst possible this, scenario. This is about as bad as it gets. Unless you give Norman, like, an infinity gauntlet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or a cosmic cube. It does, this is this is really, really bad. And he's very hard to fight, very hard to kill because he's got a symbiote. He doesn't set off Peter Parker's spidey sense. Spidey sense. Uh, he's He doesn't have as many vulnerabilities as he normally would or as a symbiote on its own normally would. It's like the end huge level in a video game where you've been fighting and you, you know, you, you've beat this guy in this way and he's run off and you've gone this way and you have to save these people and you're all these missions and this is the final chapter. I think of all like the video games I play like you know um, Horizon Zero Dawn you, you had like this end game where you had to go through this giant gauntlet and all these different things or The Witcher or you know any major video game where this is it. This is the most difficult thing and it's going to challenge everything that you've figured out and all your skills and all your abilities. And so Spider-Man has to take pieces from different characters. There's a great moment with Venom in here. There's stuff that he needs help from with anti-Venom. There's a great moment with Clash who's in here. Clash being this really cool villain that's shown up during Stan's run. He's gotten his butt kicked by the Red Goblin and he's just still... He hates Spider-Man. Like, he's got a love-hate relationship with Spider-Man. So Spider-Man has to like gear up, has to find ways to make himself stronger, faster, smarter. Friggin' uh, superior octopus shows up. So it's Doc Ock and his sexy new sexy body. He shows up. And it's 
like a really great moment that ties in with everything that Dan and the collaborators did with Superior Spider-Man, really paying off those relationships, the way that Ock connected with Aunt May. Yeah. The way, like, this is really a great culmination of 10 years of storytelling. So we, I talk a lot about Dan Slott, but, you know, Nick Lowe in the letters page does a great job of giving a sense of the importance for each artist during this run of Spider-Man and in particular this issue of Amazing Spider-Man 800. I've got Giuseppe Camacoli, Humberto Ramos, Nick Bradshaw, friggin' Marcos Martin, and the GOAT, as I like to say, Stuart Eminen. I, <laughs> hands down, I, I, and I love so many other artists. I, you know, I think it, people ask me, what's your favorite comic? What's your favorite artist? What's your favorite writer? And a lot of it has to do with what I read recently. But anytime you give me a book that is drawn by Stuart Eminen and, you know, it's got usually like maybe Marte Gracia colors and uh, Wade Von Graubadger on inks. Yep. Knew it without yeah. even looking. <laughs> Called uh, it. I got it. Uh, that is just one of the most solid, strong storytelling teams. The way they just frame a page and work together to produce what we look for. And you were just pointing out, Jamie, uh, one of your favorite scenes in the book, which comes yeah. from the end of the, the issue – with Spidey and Green Goblin, which is drawn by Stuart Eminem. It's some very prime, terrifying-looking Green Goblin, who is, at this point, out of the carnage. Yeah, it, it's the, the only way to beat Goblin, Spider-Man thinks, is he has to go for what weakness Norman has, and that's his ego. Yeah. Uh, you oh, know, you got to play it's such on. Good storytelling. Yeah, you got to play on what you know. And Norman has been using the Carnage symbiote to wreck so much havoc. And then you just, you'd be like, dude, you couldn't beat me by yourself. And that just breaks Norman. It's such a great moment. So you have this two pages here, and it's this m almost mirror image. One side is Spider Man without any extras, and the other side is Norman in the goblin costume without any extras. And it's just beautiful colors, the shading, the shadowing, the way that Stuart draws the menace coming off of Goblin, the just terrifying shapes and, and you know, shadows that uh, everything about it is just gorgeous. And, and I think what's so cool about these two panels is that if they could be looking in a mirror, they're almost posed the same way. And they're just, I want to say like evenly matched. It's just us now. It's like bare knuckle, completely stripped down. It's pure. And it's just um, giving me chills. A yeah. What, what has always been so interesting to me about Norman as a villain is he could be such an amazing hero or leader if he wasn't so driven by his ego, if he had gotten help because he's been he has mental problems and can be treated and can be helped, but he never went down that route. You know, he he went down the path of stoking those flames of going to dangerous places and getting worse and worse and worse, but he could be Tony Stark level. He's a brilliant yeah. Uh, inventor and scientist and businessman. Yeah. I'm sure there's a great what if story that is what if Norman Osborn was, was a good guy, was the good guy, right? It's yeah. kind of like Matt Murdock and Spider Gwen. Right. Like Matt Murdock is a villain, yeah. which I hate seeing because I love Matt Murdock, mm -hmm. but that's the whole fun with this is yeah. that in a parallel universe, 
he could have the same abilities and the same talents and go down the exact wrong path. Yeah, I love that, that little twist. And he just, he went the wrong way. Yeah. Uh, and he could have been so much greater. So they are, they do have these even matches. You know, Norman has this brain, these ability and, and these powers. Spider-Man has his brain, his heart and his powers and abilities. Plenty of things that make a great Spider-Man story is the Peter Parker of it all, his relationships, his friendships, the things that motivate him, the will to push forward. Even when he's beaten, he's not done. Really, really excited that we got to this point and knowing that Dan was planning this. This mm-hmm. was this was the long game. This was where he was going to get to. He's one of those writers that thinks that way and we're able to do it in such a big, bombastic way. Really pretty terrific. I would say it's the perfect ending to Dan Slott's 150-plus run on the book, but he's still got one more yeah. to go. So, what else is great is this Lockjaw issue. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying that in my neighborhood, as we all know, Lockjaw is a giant bulldog who teleports. In my neighborhood, I met two American Bulldog puppies. They are 12 weeks old, and I don't know what their names are. I didn't quite catch them. I was talking to the very sweet family who owns them. I'm going to name them Hercules and Golgotha. That's adorable. I named them Meatball and Cupcake because they are tiny, and they're just, oh, they've got these huge paws, even (laughs) though they're so tiny, and the little boy who is Meatball, because the girl has to be Cupcake, because she was Cupcake-colored. And um, he sat on my feet and he just guarded me like like a good boy. It was just the most adorable scene ever. So that made reading and looking at bulldogs on the page even more fun. So this is the end of Lockjaw. This is the end of this run of Lockjaw by Daniel Kibblesmith, the writer, and Inca Roberto Poggi. And it's another example of someone putting in such great care and drawing Lockjaw with such love and affection for for dogs. I love Marvel's dogs and Marvel's animals when they're drawn by people who clearly have a connection with animals because it just makes you love them even more. But we're starting out this issue on Adelan. So someone is running away with a swaddled something and she's being chased. And then we find out it is a puppy. It is a baby bulldog puppy. And as we go along, we meet Lockjaw. Are they in the negative zone? No, they're in the mindscape with okay. Sleepwalker. This is Daniel Kibblesmith just having some funsies. He it's gives crazy. Sleepwalker a dog and they call it Dog Walker. Yeah. And <laughs> he doesn't I... quite understand the concept. Just the best. It's great. And it's kind of beautiful because he does not understand why people have dogs, but he just figured he'd whip one up. And this is a very grand-looking dog. It's uh, the size of a horse, and he rides the dog. I mean, it, it's probably normal Great Dane size, right? Like, Great yeah. Danes are massive They beasts. are giant, very huge dogs, and so sweet. They have no idea how big they are. <laughs> but yeah, this, is, this dog looks like he knows how big he is. He looks very majestic, and he's also green. And um, But this is this is super cool and super important because this is the origin of Lockjaw. Of Lockjaw, because yeah. For many years, there was a lot of like question, well, was Lockjaw a person who through the the mists was turned into a dog? No. No, Lock, this Lockjaw is, is saying, a dog. And what is also really cool is how Lockjaw's origin connects him to Black Bolt. Because Black Bolt was exposed to terogenesis while in the womb. Right. And so that is essentially how Lockjaw 
was exposed to pterogenesis as well. So it's this horrible situation. It's so sad. It tears your heart apart to see it because it's a, we see Lockjaw's mother and she's pregs with Lockjaw and also four other siblings. But only one of these puppies actually had abilities and that was Lockjaw. But yeah, now his mission is to track down his siblings. And we've actually met a couple of them throughout the run. Bixby is one of them. And Doc Jaw, the scientist, is another one. Now he's looking for the rest. He's looking for the rest of his family. One of the things that I loved about this issue was Lockjaw teleporting through different universes and places. So we get to see Sassy on his way to getting drunk, Odin on the throne being like, Yeah. Who are these people? Get them out of my house. I hate this place. I love uh, sassy Odin. Yeah. Uh, he's just like, this sucks. And he's throwing his wine at them. D-Man gets turned into a giant dragon dude, which is dope. I love D-Man so much. Yeah, um, I like D-Man too. There's uh, I think I've met a few D-Mans, <laughs> like secret D-Mans. Um, there's uh, this two-page sequence where <laughs> we teleport <laughs> outside a ship where Valeria and Franklin Richards are. So, you, you know, for those of you who are like... What, where are the, the Fantastic Four right now? You get a little peek. Uh, it is a great moment. Some really funny dialogue. And then they go to the ultimate universe, Duck World, this redacted universe, uh, which... Universe we cannot mention. So good. It's wonderful. Uh, a prehistoric Earth, and it's comedy, and it's fun, and it's a good time. It's done for a gag. Really silly stuff. It's uh, Yeah, that's what I love about Lockjaw is that it's just purely silly. It just takes place in its own kind of... Yeah. Zone. Uh, but anyway, uh, really wonderful, happy ending to this book, which made me made me happy. Yeah, lots of pictures of dogs and the, a little visit to uh, the Inhumans. The ending of Daniel Kibblesmith's note and letters pages is great because he says, oh, yeah. Lockjaw will return in Death of the Inhumans, but I'm sure he'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't. I mean, they couldn't. Just how heartless are we? Right? Uh <laughs> So, yeah, we'll find out in Death of the Inhumans number one on sale July 4th. One more book this week, and that is Star Wars, colon, Lando, colon, double or nothing. Or is there a hyphen in there? I don't know. Sometimes we just throw a lot of uh, extra punctuation in, and doesn't matter. It's a terrific friggin' issue written by Rodney Barnes, art by Paolo Villanelli, colors by Andres Mosa, and letters by Joe Caramagna. And look. Solo, a Star Wars story, came out just this past weekend. I saw it. I had a grand old time with it. Watched the movie. One of the things that I said immediately was, man, wish we had more Lando and L337. And of course, this week we have more Lando and L3. And it's their dynamic, the bickering, funny banter between them is in full effect here. Rodney, who he's worked on at Runaway's television show. He recently did the Falcon comic book series. He's worked on Boondocks and a ton of other shows and, and different projects. He nails the dialogue, the tone, the tenor, the rhythm of all the characters in here. And the book opens, and we talk about this, Tucker and I, on Marvel's The Polis, both the video and the audio version of the my one of my favorite panels being the first time you see Lando in this book it's him staring straight at you says it's sweet but it could always be sweeter and that mm. is just that's how you get things moving he and L3 just going and getting themselves into some trouble Lando he's not a great guy he's really like in it for himself he wants new capes 
Did you see Solo yet? <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Oh, Who man, there's want a, a new cape. A wonderful sequence with all his capes. I want to know what it's like to be Donald Glover playing Lando Calrissian and now having a comic with his likeness. Yeah. Because uh, it is a perfect comic likeness of Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian. Yeah, and, and big shouts to Paolo and yeah. Andres for really nailing that. It, it, it is not just the characterizations of Lando. It's the, like... The world of Star Wars, Paolo crushes it. We've got the the Falcon in a a dogfight with a couple of TIE fighters, and it feels big and fun and and very Star Wars. This is before the events of Solo, the film. So So you can read this without spoiling anything for yourself. 100%. And this is both acts as a great compliment and a great precursor to the film or on its own if you're not going to see the film, which I don't know why because it's really fun. I love this issue. I think it's just going to be perfect for uh, for everybody who wants more of that Donald Glover Lando action. I know I do. All right. So Star Wars, great stuff. We also have great stuff with our interview this week. Oh, super fun. Yeah. With Amy Reader and Brandon Montclair, who are co-creators, co-writers for Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. I've never actually spoken to them before, but it was cool. We were talking about... You know, just the whole book that they've been working on for years with artist Natasha Bustos, uh, as well as colorist Tamar Bonvillain. It's great to have, like, consistent creative teams Mm -hmm. that they've been working together really well. And then they bring in a bunch of really talented folks as needed. Like, for this issue, which we were talking about, which was Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur, number 31, which comes out June 6th, they are working with Ray Anthony Height, who is just a great artist and hits all the tones that you need to hit for a book like Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, he compliments Natasha's art style. So it retains the flavor and the feel, the fun, uh, totally. the youth and tone of the book so well. It's a special issue, really. I mean, it's a one-off. They're doing special in a number of ways. One, Amy Reader, who recently, uh, she stopped co-writing it with Brandon. She's working on a bunch of other projects. She's a very, very busy woman. She came back to help co-write this particular issue, which commemorates the World Health Organization's No Tobacco Day, which was May 31st, which is kind of like Christmas to me. I think it's a great holiday. I think every day should be No Tobacco Day. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And this is a great really fun way to have an anti-smoking message without it being too much of a bummer, with it being informative and fun and very, very positive, which is, of course, where Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur are always coming from. So this is a super, super fun issue, but it also, it's going to create a good conversation. Totally. Also has something that is very near and dear to me for whatever reason. I don't even know why, but bees in New York City. I love it because- Saving the bees is super duper important. I am personally scared of them, but I know that they're doing a very incredibly important thing for the ecosystem. It's not just honey. It's not just mean stings. Bees are very responsible for a huge part of how our environment works. I have 100% escorted a bee out of the vestibule in my house uh, (laughs) into the outside. be like, go bee. There's plants right there. There's flowers. Do your thing. But a, a wasp? A no. Wasp, a wasp gets punched in the face. Not having wasps. that. Not also, having that. Also, getting punched in the face is a dude named Swarm, who is cool. We'll talk about him a bit in the uh, conversation with Amy and Brandon. But we also uh, talk a bit about Lunella's teacher yes. in this, which is a really cool part of the story. We'll dig into that a bit. But humanizing sort of the people who are struggling yeah. with that addiction. And if you know someone who's quitting the way Lunella does, then... 
be supportive of them. Like hear them out, be there if they're having a craving. Yeah, you're not a you're not a villain. You're not a bad guy. You're not Swarm. Uh, on that note, let's go right into the interview. Brandon Montclair and Amy Reader, how y'all doing? Good. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. We feel welcome. <laughs> it's been really encouraging to see how much the fans have jumped onto and supported the work that you guys have done along with Natasha and Tamra. It's it's just been great. So I just want to say congratulations. Yeah, it's awesome. Congrats. Really great. It's a fun book. And this issue that we're talking about specifically is issue number 31. Mm-hmm. What sparked this issue specifically talking about smoking and the environment? Was there something personal about the topics that especially brought you back to script this issue in particular? Especially the bees. <laughs> them bees. Yeah, them bees. Brandon, how did how did it end up coming about? Yeah, originally? it was, it was uh, the editor Chris Robinson's idea, and well, it was a, a fill-in issue between arcs, so kind of a, a, an opportunity to just do a standalone story. And uh, yeah, it was it was Chris's suggestion, and um, as much as it's a nice message, a lot of it's kind of a wink to the old after-school specials and and stuff. Like said, it used to be more of that stuff in comics. So how do you kind of bring it into a comic that we're doing that is for all audiences and make it kind of fun and make it kind of cool. And then, you know, but also update it, but not be too cute with the message and say, mm. oh, haha, we're just making fun of it. So trying to, to get a balance and do something interesting for an issue. And, you know, brought uh, Ray Height, who's done a couple of uh, the fill-ins that we've, when Natasha takes a month off. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Plus you have the smartest person in the whole world giving us really accurate information about the dangers of smoking. So it's coming from a place of knowledge, but also a lot of fun. It's true. It's true. Yeah. And it is a fun book. Like, we made sure to have that be that. And honestly, like, because it feels a lot like a Saturday morning cartoon, you know, that you're doing a non-smoking issue, I felt like that was kind of the angle that we went for on that was, yeah, like, making it kind of feel that way a little bit. Having that moral... You know, stuff like that. So it was a tough balance because you wanted to do it realistically. You wanted it to hit close to home. But there's also a lot of levity in it. Just the way that cartoons are able to handle something that's serious but can also be fun. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And you guys handle it in a way that the kids who read it, which there are a ton of kids who read this book, which is so there are, yeah. awesome. It's great. Uh, yeah, they're going to see it, and I think they'll they'll handle it in a cool way. Uh, but as Jamie said, we want to talk about the bees as well. Yes, uh, I love me some bees. Mm-hmm. We my wife is is allergic to bee stings, so she's not as fond. But like, we gave our upstairs neighbor uh, here in Manhattan like a little place where the bees can come, not a full hive, you know, mm-hmm. one of those deals. Okay, but in your your house <laughs> up above, we have a roof. Uh, I don't like them that much, but okay. They do, as we learn in the book, they do so much good work for the world. I'll give That's them that. That's fascinating. I don't think I could do that. There is a whole citywide industry of rooftop honey, though. That's, uh, yeah, kind That's of... That's a bee dad. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> they won't, they yeah. won't sting their dad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. We just gotta keep away the wasps. Wasps are horrible. Nightmare mm. creatures. I hate them. But with the bees comes the the cool villain use, which I love. And and Ray, who does the art in this issue, killed it yes. with Swarm. So creepy. There's like the re- spoilers. Sorry. There's a reveal with the the beekeeper mask, and I was like, ah, I I honestly didn't see it for some reason. Uh, and it hit me. I was like, oh no, Swarm. It's so gross. It was weird for me reading it because seeing the kids smoking was a lot more 
upsetting to me than yeah. seeing Swarm as scary as Swarm is. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think agree. that shows us who the real, what the real villain is in this story, as awesome as Swarm is. Like, there are real life dangers. Yeah, we definitely, it mattered a lot to us to make sure that smoking was the real villain. And also to make sure that it hit close to home. Like, we're not just having, like, mean-looking people smoking and stuff. Yeah. Like, it's people that Lunella knows. So I think that that's the part that was important to us. Like, we didn't want to come from a place of judgment, you know? Some right. Of these, you have to think about the people who are reading this. And some people, some kids, maybe their parents smoke, you know? And you don't want to make them out to be a villain. You don't want to confuse them. So it is a really delicate balance of trying to figure out how do you address this you know, and what role does Lunella play in all that? Yeah, and I think the most sympathetic character was the teacher mm-hmm. who said that she's basically been trying to quit smoking for 10 years because that's really the truth of trying to quit smoking. I don't know this personally, but yeah. I used to work for a nonprofit that deals with this. Wow. And it takes so many tries to quit. And when you slip up, it's not necessarily a failure. It's just, you know, it's one more try. You just have to keep trying. And yes. she obviously kept trying. And then she was faced with a moment where she was probably maybe going to have to try again. Mm-hmm. The panel where she's like at her desk and the cigarettes are on the table and it's just so well done. And like yeah. the emotion oh, there is oh. so good. It comes across so well of like that struggle that she's going through and her emotion of trying to convey to Lunella, like, I'm not angry at you for, like, I, I'm angry at you for this, but I'm more trying to protect you yeah. from what I've dealt with. So that is, was really strong. That moment was, it resonated. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, but the next few issues, you know, after this, we have uh, these cool covers that feature photos with comic book art. Which one's your favorite? So I'm going to say probably the best cover Marvel has maybe ever produced is issue, what is it, 33 of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur? I don't know why. I just feel like it's really, really strong, really resonates with, like, the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, It has nothing to do with me being on the cover. But how did that come together, and what's the connection to the next arc? Uh, The next arc is called uh, Save Our School. Uh, Again, this was Chris Robinson's idea, to kind of do the old-style photo covers where you have a photo and then drawing on top of it. So you incorporate drawing and photos and, yeah. What uh, Ryan's getting at is um, that uh, for one of these, is it 33? I don't, I don't remember. I believe it's 33. I'm sure. I, I'm, I, yeah. I didn't pin that to my <laughs> Twitter account and <laughs> trying to figure out how many copies I can get so I can give it to my uh, whole family. Has uh, Devil <laughs> Dinosaur and Lunella walking along uh, outside the windows of the Marvel offices and somebody got chosen <gasps> to have their funny. desk typing away, doing their Marvel stuff and plastered on the cover for all time. And uh, it was cool. I, I For one of the days I walked around and kind of found locations to take pictures of. And it's like one of those things where you take a thousand pictures and you're looking for five decent backgrounds where, where you can make it work. Yeah. But it was uh, it was really cool. Natasha had a lot of her own photo reference from kind of visiting the city and looking around. But, you know, it would be like, like you said, you had to remove Godzilla. It would be perfect. But there was like, I remember one that had a Lay's potato truck. And it's like, oh, well, we can't use that. And like, you know, so you had to kind of get the right mix of uh, the right city scenes. And then that would also work compositionally. So it was, uh, it was t- tough getting uh, the locations. But it was just something, uh, it was a fun idea. And those always stood out. Um, Except, I mean, it might even be before my time, right? You'd see them in like a package, you'd be in a quarter box. I said, oh, look at that cool photo cover. So, yeah, yeah. I was, was talking to Tom Brevoort, mm-hmm. uh, who's one of our longtime editors here at Marvel, right. because anytime I have a question about Marvel history, it's like, oh, I'll just ask Tom. Mm-hmm. He's not busy at all. He won't <laughs> yeah. be bothered if I ask him a, a ridiculous question. Right. And I'll, I'll ask him, like, how I think I asked him, how many photo covers have we done over the years? Right. And he was like, uh, there's only been a handful. Get yeah. away from me. Uh, <laughs> exactly. yeah. I was yeah. like, yes. 
I don't think you're the first Marvelite to be on the cover. And I think Anosente was dressed up as like Spider Woman or something on one of the covers. Uh, yeah, exactly in costumes. That's so, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. That's, That's super, super fun. Cool. One of the things that I love is is how talking about these photo covers is yeah. just how much of a character and and of New York mm-hmm. is to the book and how seeped in New York. It, it feels. So you guys you live in New York, from New York? Uh, I grew up here, yeah. And uh, I, I lived up in Westchester County, which is like, you know, Marvel fans know the home of the X-Men. But my parents were divorced. My father lived in the city. So I, I'm a New Yorker uh, my whole life. But Amy came. I came from Denver. But I've been here for nine years and have been drawing New York since before that. So it, you just start to kind of pay attention. It's kind of funny because uh, I've done so many New York-centric drawings now that like when I'm showing my friends around to different sites, I'm like, oh, and I drew that, and I drew that. Like even if I'm not looking up, like I'm just like, oh, there's the Chrysler Building. That's where it would be situated because I drew all of these buildings. You know, <laughs> it's a really weird. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, it, you know, you hear that in a lot of things in movies and TV. You want to make the city a character. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we try to definitely take advantage of that because I think New York has always been such a big part of Marvel. Yeah. comics and it's great and everyone makes it all great stories and all great art but sometimes you see stuff like well that's not like that's not new york city you know what i mean when you see someone kind of walking through or something oh look i'm i'm you know they call out a neighborhood and it really wouldn't look like that um which is fine you know kind of telling the story along but when you have to set it someplace well why not do something that's interesting and kind of makes it, it makes a part of it well and moon girl is mostly that whole story is mostly set around yancey street which is right. supposed to be like a it's Delancey Street. Yeah, Delancey yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Like that's like Jack yeah. and Stanley. Like, ah, yeah. oh, we'll just change it to yeah. Yancey. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. One, and one of the few I, fictional Marvel because everything's Manhattan. Yeah. In, yeah. in, in Marvel, yeah. but for some reason they changed the name. They right? just decided to yeah. change it. Yeah, but I actually work really close to Delancey Street, so it that was also like some of the motivation there because I could just go out from because I have like a studio space, you know, so I just go out and take photos and stuff for reference for the artists and. Yeah, no, I love it. My mom's favorite movie when I was a kid was Crossing Delancey. So it's like, <laughs> for whatever reason, yeah. that is always stuck in my head. Like, <laughs> oh, we're, we're crossing Delancey, like going down, you know, yeah. going into the city with her when I was a kid. But yeah, Yancey Street for me is so great to have Lunella mm-hmm. there because it is just a natural part of the Marvel Universe, making her situated with it. And I love the arc with, you know, with uh, Ben and, and Johnny and it. Mm-hmm. And it's just so cool. It's like, it felt right. It felt like family stuff. Feels like home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's always been a little bit of Fantastic Four because that's Jack Kirby created Devil Dinosaur Moon Girl, something that Amy and I are uh, created with Natasha. But half the book really is uh, Devil Dinosaur, and Jack Kirby obviously created so many characters. <laughs> but it's it's nice to like say to to connect it to Yancey Street, and that's you know because Jack Kirby grew up in the Lower East Side. Also, tie it all into Marvel Universe with the Fantastic Four lore and put it all together. Uh, is good because, yeah, you really want her to be a part of the world, you know, and, and Marvel. And I think that's, Amy and I have done creator-owned work, and it's, you know, been successful. So you like doing that, and you like to control it. I, I've always been of the mind that if you're going to work for Marvel, you really want to be a part of Marvel. You don't want to say, oh, I come to Marvel, and I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to throw out everything else. I'm not going to pay attention to what they're doing. I mean, you want, it's a balance, because you do want to have kind of, like, do your own thing. But the only reason to come and work here. And to create Moon Girl is to make her a part of uh, the fabric of the Marvel Universe, I think. Yeah, no, I think of, like, the kids who cosplay as Mm -hmm. Lunella, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, the, I I don't know, 
one of you guys, or maybe it was is Natasha, posted like this video of this little girl <laughs> oh, yeah. walking yeah. around with a double yeah. dinosaur. Yeah, that's me. This and it's my video too. With the yeah. 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 Uh and it was like it just destroys me. It is the best thing. The little the little tiny cosplayers. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, she was like not she couldn't even talk yet. Yeah. <gasps> and she oh, was no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. she had one of those like wasn't she on one of those like kind of kid leash things? Well, yeah, but they, but made, they it made it set look up like that she was leading. They yeah, made exactly. it look like the dinosaur was like on a leash and she was leading yeah. it around. Oh, yeah. no. It's amazing. And so yeah. I see that or I see, you know, little kids reading Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, reading it to their friends, reading it to their family, reading yeah. it to like that is so incredibly important and impactful mm-hmm. that we're so close to it right now. We don't have a, a full idea of how, how much what, it's going to mean. It's true yeah. when they're older, right? Like we're like, I mean, that's kind of the goal. Part of the goal, right, is get new generations into comics. And mm-hmm. no, it's been great to see. Like at first we had mostly adult fans, like when only single issues had been out and stuff. But of course, then when the trade came out and then when we kind of cut a deal with like scholastic and everything Mm. we're just getting more and more kids reading the book and it's really cool like you know and a lot of them they're not going to read the credits and know who made it so like we'll be at conventions and kids will just all of a sudden stop and be like what is this you know like just in the last i was just in minnesota and like a lot of kids were really into it and like one of them especially seemed like to be a big moon girl fan and i had Mm. this little sketch that was sitting on my table as a sample of a commission and uh, she wanted it. And I said, well, tell you what, come back here at this time because I make people work. <laughs> and I'll give it to you. And she came back. You know, they waited around so that they could get the sketch. So Wow. Um, she really wanted it. Yeah. You know, and it, it felt special. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just, um, yeah, it feels like it's meaning a lot to kids. It's not just like, oh, I read this. Like, so I, it's it's just great to see. And honestly, a lot of that is to the credit of the team. Brennan is continuing to do this amazing job writing it. Like, now I've been reading it as a fan, and it's just genius stuff. Like, it's just so good. And Natasha is, like, she's getting better and better, and she was already great, but she she pulls off everything we hand to her. And that is a big reason for the book's success. It's just that she, she can do anything. And Tamara is, like, the glue that brings everything together. She makes everything shine. It always looks better once her colors are on it, you know. Yeah. It's just an amazing team that's been really consistent. Ray's been doing great fill-in issues, including this one. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's really part of it. It's just it's just quality stuff. That's why Squirrel Girl has been successful as well. It's quality stuff, quality creators doing stuff that they put their heart Heck into. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, I, man, the art team, so good. It's like the book already feels like animated in a way it's like got energy and it's peppy and it's poppy and it bursts off the page well and the artist was an animator before did you know that no i didn't natasha bustos yeah yeah that's what where she came from look at that yeah that makes yeah. sense it all makes sense yeah i mean plus lunella's energy is just she's confident which i think is a really great thing to see in a little girl because mm-hmm. it's I guess it's a little easier when you're nine because yeah. you're not really at that <laughs> before age. Before you become 12. Yeah. Before you yeah. become 12, exactly. So I feel like she's a sort of beacon of hope. It's like, I'm a little insecure, but look at this girl. She's fine with everything. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't doubt herself. She knows she's the smartest person in the whole world. And um, I 
like seeing that because it makes me feel like maybe I'm the best something in the whole world. <laughs> yeah. I just don't know what it is yet. It's nice that she doesn't think twice about it. Yeah. That she's not strong-headed despite anything. I she hope, just is. I hope she stays nine so that age <laughs> and the years do not change that about her because I, I don't know how it's decided about aging a character like Lunella. Like, I Hmm. want her to maintain this spirit, this really pure confidence that she has. And maybe that wouldn't go away, but she'd have doubts about other things. Hmm. So I don't know. I'm just speculating. She she was a (laughs) supporting character in uh, Secret Warriors, right? And uh, the writer, Matt Rosenberg, asked me, can I have... I want to do her birthday party. And actually, Natasha Bussos had an idea for a birthday that we might do one day down the road. Says, oh, like I said, she's going to turn 10. And I never want to be on the other side of that where some other, you know, using somebody else's character. And they say, no, no, don't do it. So uh, uh, Matt just made a good story. So that he's, she just was pretending it was her birthday so everyone would kind of come and, and bring, <laughs> oh, bring her presents and cover. stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Like that. But like, as, as you're saying, yeah, it's like she's nine. And, and maybe one day we got a story that she'll turn 10. But uh, it, it's tough. And, um, you know, it's also you want to keep the book visually interesting. So, you know, like I said, we were talking about Swarm, and it's like, oh, that's so many things you can do with the bees flying around or the city and so many different neighborhoods and kind of like to, to put the mood together. One of the uh, things that I just got to do, basic things, is kind of change seasons. So we had like one arc that was in the winter, uh, it's, you know, instead of that kind of constant late spring, early summer that things usually are cast in. We had a Halloween issue where they're going around trick-or-treating, and like the next arc that's coming up after this uh, anti-smoking issue is back in the fall. So it's like, well, you know, if you, if you try to add it all up, it's not going to make sense because there's going to be multiple Christmases and multiple uh, seasons change, which is always Kind of like the Monty old. Python yeah. give way to spring. <laughs> yeah. Kind of whatever. <laughs> Anyways. But I think that is more beneficial to the book in the mm-hmm. long run, right? right. Like it's it's going to be an eternal book. Right. It's a book that a kid can pick up and it Yeah, it's, it's always about forever. a nine-year-old who's, you know, uh, teleports a dinosaur and is the smartest person in the, the world and yeah. all the other stuff like that too. Yeah, Am so. I crazy or was there a scene with like a future Lanella tease? Yeah, people, yeah, there was. It was actually a, a, a short sequence and we switched up the art style and um, and, and it wasn't Natasha and I'm trying to remember who does it. I, I want to say it was Leonard Kirk. But, yes. Um, he did it in kind of a retro style and it was, and Tamara did a great job kind of doing retro colors on it mm. and it was really cool. Maybe that'll be revisited. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. But uh, yeah, is it a dream? Was it, uh, was it real? Was it a vision of the future? Yeah. I don't know. It's, That's cool. Yeah. Is this my beautiful house? Is this my beautiful <laughs> wife? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I was thinking about just kids reading it. Yeah. Whatever brings you to comics, I want to help you enjoy it. Whether it's this book and this first experience, it, Hopefully, it keeps you going because it's so amazing. The yeah, first I- experience is everything. Everything. Yeah. And Moon Girl is such a good first experience because, first of all, it's Moon Girl. But also, it's a devil dinosaur who is like Cl- <laughs> Clifford the Big Red Dog, only a dinosaur. Uh, give us one last tease for, for the next arc and what's to come for, for the book. Yeah, well, save our school. And um, a lot of the times, you, you kind of um, you get in another world or you get the Fantastic Four and Galactus and all these other stuff. I wanted to do a local story. Um, and so it is about uh, all the kind of supporting characters that you only see for a panel or maybe they get a page. So it's their kids in their class. It's the teacher. Uh, it's everyone coming back. And there's a new kid in school causing trouble. And it's the Kingpin's adopted daughter, uh, Princess Fisk. And she's a, bit of a, she's a bit of a brat. Of and course her name uh, is Princess. Yes. And that's the... Uh, 
that's the the next arc. We had talked before about yeah, the possibility a <laughs> yeah, of a exactly. like entitled brat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, oh, I'm yeah. excited. I, I want. Really I want. She gets everything she wants from her father, the Kingpin, who's also mayor of uh, uh, Marvel's New York City. But uh, yay! Oh, I, imagine. I, I, I'm so excited. I want a big red dinosaur. I want a big dinosaur too, Daddy. Yeah. What yeah. if so, the yeah, big red yeah. dinosaur hangs out with Daredevil? Because yeah. that's so much red on the page, but <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> Um, this tree is a lot of red. <laughs> my wife and I are in the process of trying to adopt, and we're we're uh, awaiting good, family. So I, I love any time I hear a story about you know adopted kids and all that kind of stuff because yeah. there's a full spectrum of stories you can tell with that, which I think mm-hmm. is great. And, you know, like I look mm-hmm. at that and like, oh, yeah. in X number of years, that's a story I can pull and be like, oh, look, this is this is a unique family. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, Kingpin maybe doesn't have the best reasons to. You know, maybe, maybe there's an ulterior motive. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. You'll have to read and find out. Damn it, Wilson! <laughs> yeah. maybe, oh. But maybe he'll, you know, maybe he'll learn to 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 love something too. Maybe. Maybe. I guess we'll just have to read to find out. <laughs> oh, stay tuned, you guys. <laughs> awesome, Amy, Brandon. Thank you for joining us on this thank week in Marvel. Thank you. Okay, so I hope you guys dug the interview. Uh, there is a video version of the interview. You can watch that on Marvel.com and Marvel Social Media, uh, where we put all our videos and the YouTubes and all that good stuff. So check that out. Along with a bunch of other videos, there was one episode of uh, Eat the Universe that went out this week that had really adorable Groot and Rocket Raccoon yes. from Marvel Universe Live there. They were helping Justin make a trash... Trash omelet. Yeah. Uh, oh, and it is. I don't. I would eat that. I, you know, I eat omelets uh, fairly oh, often. Omelets are great. Omelets are. It didn't have cheese, as far as I yeah. can tell, though. And cheese is usually the thing that holds it all together. But it was yeah. like egg with rice, bonder, tikka masala. Was it tikka? chicken tikka masala? Tikka yeah. masala, yeah. Which is probably why I didn't have cheese because it's got it's got your cream element. In sure, it. that's yeah. fair. I've eaten Justin's cooking before. I know it's going to be good. Yeah. It's going to be amazing and delicious. I trust that Justin knows what he's doing. Yes. My takeaway was that this is a really excellent conversation about food waste, which is a major issue because people throw away perfectly edible food just because it looks or seems like it might not be good. So he takes a bunch of things that look like they should be thrown out and he actually turns it into something called a trash omelet, which is actually, look does look really good. One of my favorite things from the episode is also Justin watching Marvel Universe live. Yes. And it just looks like like he's just a, a child. child. <laughs> uh, which is great because I, I went, we did a whole segment for Thwip, the big Marvel show, when that was still running, uh, behind the scenes with Marvel Universe live. I watched the show surrounded by children who were losing their minds. It was yeah. like they were just freaking out because they were seeing their superheroes in front of them. It's this wonderful experience. So great. The the things that those performers can do is is wild. Oh, uh, one other thing. Uh, we talked about Clash a little bit earlier in Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, Ramon Perez, who did some Clash stories in Amazing Spider-Man, uh, some tangential stuff a couple years ago, he is on Marvel's Quick Draw this week telling a really cool story about what he's working on and how he's relates to his parents, which I yeah. found really fascinating. I love that. And he was showing him drawing uh, Malekith and Dario Agar, the uh, giant minotaur dude in the Thor at the gates of Valhalla, one shot, uh, just gorgeous stuff. It's just really fun creators talking about creating, which I always really like. Because I one of the things that he said that I thought was really 
kind of cute was that when he was a kid and he would see the art, he's like, I just thought it sort of happened. <laughs> and he's like, I, he never really realized like, oh, this is a thing that I can do and make money at it. Yeah. And now he's he's making that stuff that just sort of happened. He's making it happen. Making it happen. Making it happen. You know who else is making it happen? Our community. When they tweet us using oh. hashtag This Week in Marvel or they email us at twimpodcast at marvel.com. Raph AB, first up, he says, caught pretty bored at work today. Playing a lot of Marvel Strike Force to get a little busy. Marvel Strike Force got me some cable. I got me some Deadpool. Doing really well. Our This Week in Marvel Alliance killing it oh very cool yeah they're, they're crushing it they're doing great work it's really fun raf also asks about the stripper that popped up in the x-men wedding special uh <laughs> you have some questions we don't have those answers raf sorry raf i can't say that either <laughs> of us has ever been to a stripper no no toshi mitsuhashi had tweeted to Kevin Smith that he enjoyed the interview. Enlightening and truly amusing. Uh, I, I like that. We got a, a couple of tweets in here. H.P. Seaton was really excited. Wanted to say that the discussion about writing Daredevil was so fantastic. And thanks us for great content each week. Oh, Thank you're welcome. Thank you, H.P. Uh, we'll finish up our community segment. Simon Williams picked Falcon Eight as his twin of the week. He wants to see uh, Sam, Misty, Sean, and Blade team up more often. As do I. Yeah. It's terrific. Finally, last one this week is from our pal Brian Stranko, who's in my This Week in Marvel alliance on Marvel Strike Force. He says, apparently it was around episode 333 that I started listening to the podcast because I finally heard Agent M mention the start of our conversation as I chipped away at the back issues. It's fantastic to have binged so many podcasts and suddenly have shout outs in one. Is this the singularity? Uh-oh. Is this what happened? It's all it's all coming together. <laughs> this is, uh-oh. What are we going to do? No. All right. So our question of the week, would you rather have Leopardon, Japanese Spider-Man's giant robot, which is also a ship called Marveler? And you, comes with a homing device yep. that you wear. Or would you rather have the Millennium Falcon? A giant robot that is also a ship? Or the coolest ship in all of the galaxy. Yeah, like it's a tough question. I know my answer would be to have Leopardon because giant robot trumps everything else. Since I'm not into flying, I feel like I'd also go with Leopardon Mm. because I can get him to do the flying for me, and he can also probably fight my battles. Yeah, while I sit back and have a nice coffee. He's got to have a coffee machine in that robot somewhere. So, guys. Let us know what you would want. Would you rather have Leopardon or the Millennium Falcon? Tweet us using hashtag This Week in Marvel and email us at twimpodcast at marvel.com. We'll be back with another episode next week. Next week I'll be here, but the week after that, I'll be on a trip. Another trip? Oh, no. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week. Right now I'm Ryan. And I'm Jamie. This is Marvel. Your universe. Sweet, 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 sweet
Spider-Man 